Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 29, 2019, the Gray Center hosted a conference titled The Administration of Immigration, where a variety of scholars and practitioners discussed various aspects of the administration of our immigration law and policy. As with all of our public policy conferences, the panel discussions centered around new scholarship written by some of the panelists. Those papers are all available on the Center's website, as are videos of the panel discussions. And over the next few episodes of this podcast, we'll be releasing the audio recordings of those discussions. We'll start this series with a panel that started the day, titled Big Picture, Moral Underpinnings of Immigration Law. In this discussion, moderated by the Gray Center's then-Deputy Director, Andrew Kloster, we heard from three scholars and practitioners who had authored new papers looking at different aspects of immigration law and some of the questions raised by them. We heard from Craig Lerner, a professor of law at the Scalia Law School here at George Mason University, whose paper was titled Crimes Involving Moral Turpitude, the Puzzling and Persistent and Constitutional Immigration Law Doctrine. William W. Chip, a member of the Board of Directors for the Center of Immigration Studies, discussed his paper, E-Verify, Mining Government Databases, to deter employment of unauthorized aliens. And Cassandra Burke Robertson of the Case Western Reserve University School of Law presented her paper titled Litigating Citizenship. Her co-author on the paper was Irina Manta of Hofstra University. And again, the discussion was moderated by our then-Deputy Director, Andrew Kloster, who, I should say in recent weeks, has departed to join the EPA, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Hope you enjoy the discussion. It's a lovely fall day outside. Thank you for coming to spend the day uh, with us uh, discussing uh, administration and immigration law. I'm Andrew Kloster. I'm the deputy director here at the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at Scalia Law. We're so pleased to have you here. We have uh, a great schedule for folks today, and we have a number of new papers uh, that will be up today on our website uh, the papers, we, the way we normally do things here at the Gray Center, we have a research series, a private roundtable with workshopping of a number of papers. Today, I think we have seven, uh, followed by a public conference to showcase those papers. And the papers really do serve not to be the sum total of discussion, but to be a jumping off point for broader themes. Uh, today's discussion uh, is about the administration of immigration law. So uh, perhaps no system, uh, perhaps no substantive area of American law is as complicated uh, as immigration law. It involves multiple federal agencies, DOD, DHS, HHS, DOJ, and the list goes on. And it involves state actors as well. It involves multiple courts. It involves many actors, grant-making, regulation, and so on. And so while we've had prior events on uh, OIRA, administrative law, and other areas of administrative law and, 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 and doctrine, I do think that today will be very fruitful in highlighting some of the lessons of administrative law and practice uh, from immigration law and may bring some best, best practices back to immigration law as well. So I'm just so happy to have all of you here and to have these great panelists. Our kickoff panel is on the moral underpinnings of immigration law. And I'll just start off by uh, introducing our first panelist, Craig Lerner. Uh, who is the author of one of our uh, papers for today. Uh, he's the author of Crimes Involving Moral Turpitude, the Puzzling and Persistent and Constitutional 
immigration law doctrine. Craig Lerner, uh, Professor Craig Lerner is professor of law here at the Antonin Scalia Law School. He served as associate dean for academic affairs here for nine years. Prior to joining uh, the faculty, he was associate independent counsel in the Office of Independent, uh, independent Counsel during the Whitewater investigation, um, and he was also a clerk uh, for, for, for Judge uh, James Buckley, who is a, a good friend of the center. So uh, without further ado, please, Craig. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, so uh, most broadly, the, the question that I propose to address is, on what legal and moral grounds can a nation expel an alien? As one would expect, different nations take different approaches. On the one hand, the Swedish highest court recently overturned a deportation order of a convicted rapist, holding that there was no extraordinary reason to banish him. On the other hand, Australia's parliament voted in 2014 to expand that country's grounds for deportation. Australia's attorney general now can deport an alien simply upon a finding that the alien did not possess, quote, good moral character. In American law today, Section 237 of the Immigration and Nationality Act provides for roughly 15 categories of crimes that warrant removal of an alien. Most of these categories are relatively familiar to lawyers, but the very first one in the statutory list is, outside of the immigration law context, an oddity, quote, crimes involving moral turpitude. It often goes by the infelicitous acronym CIMT. The phrase entered federal immigration law in 1891 as a ground for the exclusion of aliens who wanted to enter America. At the time, the phrase, quote, moral turpitude, close quote, was a relatively customary one. But today, its purchase in American law has been relegated to relatively obscure corners. Puzzlingly, then, the CIMT concept has not only persisted but thrived in immigration law. The Immigration and Nationalization Act of 1917 provided that aliens convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude were not only inadmissible, but also deportable. Major revisions to immigration law in 1952 and 1996 have actually expanded the scope of this provision. Today, the law provides for the deportation of any alien who has committed a crime involving moral turpitude within five years of admission to the United States, as long as the crime was punishable by a year in prison, even if the alien was not actually incarcerated for a single day. So the first part of my article cataloged the century-long congressional commitment to CIMTs in immigration law. That commitment has been bipartisan and reflects a conscious choice to preserve a term that from the early 20th century on has been recognized to be ambiguous. The puzzle that emerges from this section is why Congress has remained wedded to these provisions, even as simpler to administer alternatives are easily imagined. In recent years, the CIMT provisions have attracted skeptical commentary and blunt criticisms in judicial opinions and the academic literature. The most sweeping criticism raised as long ago as a 1929 Harvard Law Review student note, but with mounting fervor in the, recent, in the last decade, is that the CIMT provisions are so indeterminate as to be unconstitutional under the Due Process Clause. The argument has become particularly ripe in light of a trio of Supreme Court opinions that have used the void for vagueness doctrine to strike down provisions in federal criminal and immigration law. The second section of my article argues, however, that the void for vagueness precedents cited to support the invalidation of the CIMT provisions are, for the most part, inapposite. The linchpin of the argument that the CIMT provisions are unconstitutional 
is that the void for vagueness doctrine applies in the words of Justice Kagan, in the same way in criminal law and immigration law. Yet a moment's reflection would generate doubts about this claim. The manifold protections of the criminal justice system, the right to the assistance of counsel, the privilege against self-incrimination, the power to suppress illegally obtained evidence, et cetera, do not apply in a deportation hearing. It would be odd if protections explicitly codified in the Constitution are not extended at all to deportation hearings but a void for vagueness doctrine that courts have inferred from the due process clause is applied in the same way. At least since the mid 20th century, due process current concerns have been deemed relevant in deportation hearings, but those concerns are relaxed. And this makes sense. Vastly different procedural protections are present when on the one hand in category of cases A, the question is whether conduct is proscribed at all by the criminal law. And on the other hand, in category B, where the question is the extent of the penalty, direct or indirect, that attached to a criminal conviction. In category A, the void for vagueness doctrine principle is primarily important in ensuring that an individual was put on notice that the conduct was contrary to law. By contrast, in category B, the person is on notice that the conduct was contrary to law. The less compelling narrative, excuse me, uh, is that, um, uh, for those subject to deportation after conviction for a CAMT is that I knew that my conduct was a crime punishable by over a year in prison, but it was unclear whether the crime also qualified as one involving moral turpitude. None of the foundational void for vagueness cases have the latter aspect. In all of these cases, the petitioners argued that due to the vagueness of the law, they simply could not know whether their contract was, conduct was criminalized or not. As Justice Alito observed in Johnson versus United States, the concern that vague laws will, quote, trap the innocent have no force when it comes to sentencing provisions. And deportation hearings present an even less persuasive case for vagueness concerns than sentencing hearings. After all, the indirect consequences of a finding of criminal liability are unclear and vague in untold ways. Whether one will forfeit one's right to bear arms, whether one will have to register as a felon, whether one will lose one's right to vote, etc. Finally, the objection that the CIMT provisions invest untrammeled discretion in executive branch officials, enabling them, in the words of one scholar, to play God, vastly overstates the case. When an immigration official adjudicates an alien deportable because of a CIMT, he or she is required to determine that the offensive act is one, a state or federal crime punishable by a year in prison, and two, a crime of moral turpitude as defined by the national community. Step one could not be more objective and constrained and even step two presupposes an inquiry into the views of the community. So the final section of my article considers a recent case of first impression. The immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals were confronted with the statute that had never before been considered a CAMT. And through a study of that case, I think we can evaluate whether the critics have fairly portrayed both how vague the CAMT provisions are and how unconstrained immigration officials have been when enforcing them. So the case involved a Mexican citizen, Ortega Lopez, who was convicted of violating the Animal Fighting Prohibition Enforcement Act, 7 U.S.C. 2156. And he sponsored a chicken in a cockfight and sentenced to one year's probation. Now, in 2008, the BIA held that the violation of this statute was a CIMT. And in 2013, the Ninth Circuit remanded for further findings. In 2018, the BIA issued a confirmatory opinion, and just last month, uh, Ortega Lopez filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit again. So in my article, I evaluated whether the BIA's reasoning in arriving at the conclusion 
reveals the, uh, arriving at its conclusion that this violation of this statute was a CAMT, reveals the hopeless indeterminacy of the entire process. So is the phrase crimes involving moral turpitude so vague that immigration officials are simply playing God and determining the fate of Ortega Lopez? And it seemed to me not. In analyzing the issue, the Board of Immigration Appeals laid out a very familiar framework for assessing whether a crime involves moral turpitude. There must be first, a couple mental state, and second, reprehensible conduct. The first part of the inquiry requires a close reading of the statute. In this case, the section uh, 2156A1 stipulated a mens rea of knowingly, so conviction required proof of scienter. The second part of the inquiry is the more difficult and potentially open-ended one. Is the conduct contemplated by section 2156 inherently base, vile, depraved, or contrary to the accepted rules of morality? And in arriving at its conclusion that it was, the BIA canvassed, quote, the clear consensus in contemporary American society. To me, the BIA sensibly began its analysis with the observation that all 50 states today criminalize uh, animal cruelty and cockfighting in particular. The Ninth Circuit's answer that more is required to prove that the crime involves moral turpitude is, to me, unpersuasive. Yes, all 50 states criminalize simple assault and battery. And yes, simple assault and battery is not a CAMT. But the legislative history of the various assault statutes do not reveal the outpouring of denunciation that accompanied the enactment of the animal cruelty statutes. Indeed, the BIA accumulated only a fraction of a voluminous literature that confirms an American consensus that animal fighting ventures are reprehensible. So I did not think that it seemed to me, at least, that the immigration officials were playing God in this instance, or that the CIMT provisions were so vague as to provide little guidance. So let me just conclude by acknowledging that Ortega Lopez's case nonetheless presents a kind of puzzle, because here we have someone whose actions were deemed sufficiently minor by the criminal law that his sentence was one year's probation, and yet for purposes of immigration law, they were deemed so morally turpitudinous that they required deportation. And by contrast, consider the case of another alien, Ihar Satnikau, an alien who was convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to five years imprisonment. This was in Virginia. According to the Fourth Circuit in a 2017 opinion, however, his crime was not a CAMT and thus did not subject him to deportation. The Fourth Circuit reasoned that because the mens rea of involuntary manslaughter is recklessness, Satnikau did not possess the requisite culpable mental state to justify a finding of a CAMT. So to many observers, the results in these two cases cannot be reconciled and provide additional grounds for reconsidering the inclusion of CIMT provisions in immigration law. These provisions are not only difficult to administer, they generate not immediately intuitive results. Why has Congress persisted for over a century in preserving the CIMT provisions? So one possible answer is that the criminal law and the immigration law exist for fundamentally different purposes. The former is about punishment. The latter is about what kind of people we want in our community. Violations of the criminal law are proxies, but only imperfectly for traits that may be deemed to disqualify someone from inclusion in our community. Involuntary manslaughter involves a terrible outcome and demands punishment, but it may not reflect our current behavior that renders someone unfit to be a member of our community. By contrast, knowing participation in an animal fighting venture may be said to entail a web of unsavory affiliations as well as participation in a subculture antithetical to the morals of our community. Now, to some observers, it is preposterous that as meaningless a phrase as crimes involving moral turpitude remains part of immigration law. To be sure, there are cases that expose profound divisions of opinion in the absence of any consensus American view of moral turpitude. 
This does not mean that it is impossible for officials, judges to discern a consensus view in many cases, nor that it is inappropriate for immigration law to be used as a vehicle to embody and affirm that consensus view. If we are to make sense of the puzzling persistence of crimes involving moral turpitude provisions, it may be in this way. However quaint and ridiculous to many years, this language captures an older but not altogether outdated sentiment that participation in a political community presupposes a shared vision of morality. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Craig. Our next speaker is uh, William W. Chip. Uh, we, can we get his slides up as well? Uh, he is a recently retired uh, counsel at Covington and Burling, where he practiced for, well, I don't know how long you practiced there, but you practiced international law for over 40 years and I think a long time at Covington and Burling. He's on the board of directors uh, at uh, the Center for Immigration Studies, um, and he has previously served as general counsel and director for the Federation uh, of American, uh, for American Immigration Reform. He's authored numerous articles on immigration policy. Uh, Bill? Um, I have to say I was a bit surprised when I learned that the title of our panel was The Moral Underpinnings of Immigration Law because um, my paper on E-Verify is sort of a hyper-technical paper on uh, uh, how the government uh, operates um, various programs to try to prevent the hiring of, well, I'm sorry, prevent the hiring of uh, unauthorized aliens. Um, but there is, I guess, one little moral aspect to this that appears early on in the paper. Um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, back in 1952, uh, uh, they enacted uh, a, a very substantial reform to the immigration laws, which, among other things, made it a crime to harbor an illegal alien. Um, under the so-called Texas Proviso, however, uh, hiring or employing unauthorized aliens, aliens unauthorized to work, was exempted. And uh, so if I had an alien, was hiding an alien in my basement, uh, I could go to prison. But if I hired him to cut my grass, that was fine. And there does some, seem to be something immoral about that in the sense that you are um, almost inviting people to break the law. You're on the one hand, you're saying, if you come here, we'll deport you, you can go to jail, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, we're going to kind of wink and nod and, and, and let you hang around as long as you got a job. And that actually had a, an impact. <laughs> um, you may remember the Supreme Court decision in Plyler v. Plyler v. Doe, the one that said that uh, uh, you could not deny public education to the children of undocumented immigrants. And people, um, that was a long time ago. I think most people are aware of that decision. Um, but um, if you read the decision itself, there is a little bit of morality in there. Um, uh, the court said, uh, the sheer incapability or lax enforcement of laws barring entry into this country, coupled with the failure to establish an effective bar to the employment of undocumented aliens, has resulted in the creation of a substantial shadow, substantial shadow population of illegal immigrants within our borders. This situation raises the specter of a permanent caste of undocumented migrants, uh, aliens, encouraged by some to remain here as a supply of cheap labor, but nevertheless denied the benefits that our society makes available to citizens and lawful residents. 
The existence of such an underclass presents most difficult problems for a nation that prides itself on adherence to principles of equality under law. Now that, I'm not sure the court would have said they were engaged in morality, but <laughs> that seems to be uh, the point, isn't it? That uh, on the one hand, to kind of allow them to stay here and then say, yeah, but you can't send your kids to school, just doesn't seem right. Uh, they really didn't say much more than that. In some sense, it wasn't a, a legal opinion. It was more like, in my view, a moral opinion. Uh, the Texas Proviso, uh, however, was uh, eliminated in 1986 and uh, uh, in the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, and it made it unlawful uh, to hire an, unauthor an unauthorized alien. And so thereafter, if you will, we've done away with the sort of hypocrisy of saying, well, you can't be here, but by the way, we're going to pay you if you come. Um, theoretically, uh, that would have led to, uh, you know, I, I think there are a large number of employers who, in fact, are uh, serious about not hiring unauthorized aliens. But since we understand there's 11 million undocumented aliens living in the United States, there are a certain number of other employers that either don't care or um, don't know in some cases. Um, and so it became pretty clear that uh, simply making it illegal was not enough. Um, the, way, um, uh, the way it works, the way employer sanctions work is, is basically through a form. Every new employee, whether alien or not, has to fill out a form I-9, which contains information concerning his or her identity and authorization to work and they have to present a document that demonstrates those things. A passport, for example, shows your identity and your authorization to work, a U.S. passport. Uh, most aliens will require a, a separate form, it's called an EAD, from the government to prove that they're eligible to work even though they're not a citizen. Um, and, but basically it ended at that. As long as the employee showed it to his employer, and as long as the employer looked at it, that's the end of the story, which means that the use of false documents and uh, so, so on and so forth was uh, enabled most people to get around these rules. Uh, uh, you may recall that under the Clinton administration, there was a mission on immigration reform that went into a lot of different issues, including how many legal immigrants should be admitted to the country. But one of the things that the commission recommended was um, giving employers some way to confirm whether the information they're looking at is right or not. And that was the origins of what we today call E-Verify. Uh, E-Verify is a system that employer just goes online, puts in the name, social security number, and refers to the documents and so forth, and bingo. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security will confirm the alien-type documents, uh, like an EAD, and the Social Security Administration will confirm that, yeah, this is a real name and a real number, and they belong together. Um, uh, unfortunately, E-Verify is not mandatory. Uh, it does it does ca catch, if you will, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, about five hundred thousand a year. I kind of figured it out from government statistics. About five hundred thousand employees a year, four hundred ninety thousand to be precise, are basically uh, outed, if you will, in the sense that uh, their their employment eligibility is not confirmed by the government. Um, um, the, um, that, so that's what comes from the Form I-9. But when an employee is hired, he also fills out a Form W-2, 
which basically is for tax reporting purposes. Form W-4, I'm sorry, which actually is a, it was a uh, tax purposes, name, social security number, address, so forth. Um, the employer takes that information and reports his wages to the Social Security Administration, which then gives the information to the IRS um, on that form. And uh, so while the, the, the form uh, I-9 has led to this E-Verify program, the form W-2 and W-4 have led to a so-called no-match program, the so-called no-match letters that the Social Security Administration sends out. When these w W-2s come into them, when you look at them, this name doesn't show up in our system. This number doesn't exist, um, or they don't match. Um, they they will they will they sometimes do and sometimes not. They will send a letter to the employer, uh, originally to the employee actually, saying that you have this mismatch here. And people sometimes overlook the fact that uh, while this is viewed as a means of immigration law enforcement, its primary purpose is to make sure that all of you, uh, all of us get our social security benefits because there are many reasons why um, the system might might uh, not work. For example, you write down your social security number on the W-4, then the employer, when he puts it into his system, puts in a, a different number by mistake. Um, women, uh, many women get married, when they get married, they change their last name. Oftentimes, they forget to tell the social security administration. So the name on their W-2 doesn't match the name the Social Security Administration doesn't have. And in one year, they estimated that $50 billion of wages were not allocable to anybody because the names and numbers didn't match. That's just in one year. So this system is designed not just to catch illegal aliens, but in some sense primarily to make sure that everybody gets the benefits they're entitled to. Um, and the history of no-match letters is, is, is kind of interesting because uh, uh, they originally only sent them out to very few uh, employers, and employers that had like 10% of their workforce had mismatched numbers. Uh, they later started sending them out to more, and uh, that became a little bit controversial. And uh, one issue, of course, is if you get a no-match letter and you don't do anything about it, that constructive knowledge, does that mean that, oh, maybe this guy, if, I, if they come in and try to prosecute him for hiring an illegal alien, um, does the fact that he ignored the no-match letter, is that evidence against him? Uh, curiously, there isn't, in the government regulations, a, a perfectly clear answer to that, although I think most immigration lawyers would advise their clients that uh, just throw it in the trash and not doing anything, it's probably can be used against you. Um, so I think just getting the letter itself uh, for most employers is, uh, it's useful. Um, I think it, it causes them to rethink, to go check with the employee. In fact, they are obligated when they get a no-match letter to go to the employee, ask him, try to figure out what went wrong, and uh, tell the employee to go to the If they can't figure it out themselves, tell the employee to go to the local secu Social Security office and get it fixed there. Um, whether he, the employer, if the employee refuses, all right, whether the employer is then entitled to fire him, again, is most lawyers would would tell you probably, but it's actually not that clear because the um, the employer sanctions law uh, in IRCA also was has many provisions designed to prevent discrimination against um, people who might look like an illegal alien or not. 
And so there are, on, there are all these rules on the other side to make sure employers don't just automatically, for example, um, the no match letter makes clear that you may not use this letter in and of itself to fire an employee. Just getting this letter is not enough. You've got to go to the employee, give him a chance to prove that actually this is his name, this is his social security number, and get it fixed. Uh, under the Bush administration, um, under uh, when Michael Chertoff was uh, head of uh, Homeland Security, um, they tried to put a little bite into these no match letters by pointing out that um, if you do certain things, like if you actually follow up and so on and so forth, we will not prosecute you. The implication being, <laughs> if you don't, we will. And uh, that uh, uh, that regulation was went to court. The court said, well, you know, I, I'm not sure. You may have the power to do this, but you didn't have enough hearings and so on and so forth. So you got to go back and rewrite the reg. They did. And then when the Obama administration came in, they just dropped the reg. And in fact, the Obama administration eventually suspended the issuance of no match letters. Um, which, you know, but guess what? The current administration has reinstituted the issuance of no match letters. They go to the, originally, no match letters, as I said, went to employees. These go to the employer. Um, supposedly, they go to every employer that has even a single employee, not just new hires, but existing hires, people who've been working for you for 20 years, uh, if their name and social security number don't match. They, as of April, they had sent out about 700, over 700,000 letters. Uh, they're sending the rest of them this fall. Uh, I have not, um, I have to admit, although I have, you know, some contacts within the administration, I find it very, very difficult to get any information about how this program is going and how many more letters they plan to send out, um, how employers are responding. I have to say, frankly, I'm, I'm a little surprised it hasn't gotten more negative feedback. Why we don't read more newspaper articles about employers, you know, Chamber of Commerce getting all upset about this and absolutely nothing. It's very strange in a way. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Um, I guess the, uh, the last thing I'd add is um, um, some people have made the point correctly that um, this only works, this doesn't work if the employee happens to have uh, somebody else's identity. He steals someone else's identity, like, or some someone like who's 100 years old and isn't working in head. Um, because if the Social Security Administration still has that name and number in their system, that's the end of the story. It matches, right? So, um, uh, the end of my article, I talk a little bit about how they might beef this up to make it work a little better, um, given the weaknesses I've mentioned. Um, for example, the implicit threat that the Chertoff regulations had, that DHS would come in and go after you. Um, again, the court got rid of that, but I would think it'd be more useful to focus on perjury. Because when the employee fills out that W-4, it's under penalty of perjury. And um, the IRS, you know, there's a lot of concerns about mixing tax and social security with immigration law enforcement. But the IRS has the right and the duty to investigate uh, perjury in the use of W-2s, and so does the Social Security Administration. Um, they don't want that to happen. And they can go in, they can investigate, they can prosecute and send you to prison. Doesn't matter if you're an alien or not. And uh, uh, so I, I, one of the things I thought they ought to do is uh, 
uh, maybe just put that in the, when they send the letter, tell the employer, give a copy of this letter to your employee and I'll remind him uh, <laughs> that uh, if this isn't his name and number, he's committed perjury and we can and may come and investigate. Uh, I think that would have a, a very similar effect to what they tried to do with the Chertoff regulations. Um, and so I, in my paper, I go through a couple more things like that that I think could be used to help. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I forgot to move the slide. So perjury, uh, identity fraud. Uh, uh, one of the, uh, the last thing I'll say is uh, one of the problems uh, uh, with using the IRS side of this to enforce the immigration law is Section 6103 of the code, which has very, very rigid restrictions on the use of taxpayer information by the IRS to do anything other than collect taxes. That's why I like the perjury route, because it doesn't involve calling up DHS and saying, oh, we got an illegal alien here. It's just enforcing the tax code. Um, and uh, yes, okay, yes. And, and so uh, I'll, I will end with uh, the reason I wrote this paper originally, I originally wrote it for the Center for Immigration Studies, and this is a updated version, is uh, uh, there was a big debate uh, you know, I think most people in the United States on both sides would argue we need to enforce the immigration laws. Well, no, actually, there's a growing number of Democrats who say we don't, but I think most people would say we do. And uh, uh, the concern is that if we actually start cramping down on illegal immigration through like mandatory e-verified, no match letters and so forth, what do you do with the 10 million people who are already living here or maybe six, seven million workers who are already working here? And uh, uh, the threat of mass deportations, right? If we start enforcing the immigration law, what do we do with the ones here? We can't deport 10 million people. And I think that's a little misleading because uh, during the Obama administration, for example, of the 11 million that were here when he was elected president, by the time he left office, about a third of them had been deported and about a third of them had gone home voluntarily. So only like 40, I think 40% of the ones that were here when he came in were still here. And I believe that if we... Uh, had an, uh, an effective E-Verify and no-match program, uh, sooner or later, most of them would lose their jobs. And if they couldn't, they came here to work. If they can't work, they'll probably go home. So I, I think uh, mass deportations is, is maybe uh, uh, not as strong an argument as it might seem. Uh, it's hard to say because, you know, until we actually do these things. Um, but in any event, that was, uh, sorry to go over time. So our last speaker is Cassandra Burke-Robertson, who's the author of the paper for this conference, uh, or supported by the Center uh, Litigating Citizenship with her co-author, Arena Manta, uh, forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. Uh, Professor uh, Robertson is the John D. Verdrinko Baker Hotstedler Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Professional Ethics at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. She teaches a number of courses there. She has wide-ranging scholarship and has co-authored a case book in the field of professional responsibility. Uh, so, uh, please. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to start by, by thanking Andrew, Adam, and Leah, and the Gray Center for supporting this work. It's been a really great experience to do the roundtable and, um, and now this conference. Um, and thanks also to my co-author, Irina, who worked with me on this project all the way through. Um, and during the Q&A period, if you have questions, we might both chime in on that. 
Um, so you've heard a couple of papers today um, so far that talk about consequences to immigrants, right? Um, whether it is a consequence in terms of um, one's uh, authorization to work or whether it's the consequence that Craig talked about um, with these crimes involving moral turpitude that could form the basis of removal from the country. Um, the paper that Irina and I worked on takes a step back and looks at, um, with all of these consequences that can accrue to non-citizens, how confident are we that this individual um, involved in one of these cases truly is a non-citizen? Um, I teach civil procedure at law school, and so um, the lens we look at it through is a procedural lens. How confident are we in the standard of proof and the procedures that led to a determination of citizenship status? Um, citizenship, of course, forms the basis of the United States Constitution and our form of government. To the founders, citizenship was very closely linked to notions of consent and to political legitimacy. The Declaration of Independence, of course, famously proclaimed that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Um, under the founders' view, which was really quite radical for its time, the idea is that power flows from the citizens to the state. This is the opposite of the English monarchy of the day, where power was lodged very firmly in the sovereign and then only shared with the people by the grace of that sovereign. Under the American experiment, the state could legitimately exercise only the power given to it by its citizens, and it had no other source or authority over them beyond what the citizens had voluntarily consented to give it. So our question is then, what happens when immigration restrictions bump up against citizenship rights? And this is really not an abstract question. Citizenship disputes are actually really very common, and they're growing even more so in the current era. So just as background, legal challenges tend to arise in three different areas. So first is when the government just might not recognize an individual's claim of citizenship and thus might refuse to issue a passport or allow an individual to vote or even sometimes allow them to return to the United States. In this case, the individual might raise the issue of citizenship affirmatively, usually by filing a declaratory judgment action seeking recognition of their citizenship um, and the associated rights with it. The second situation is when the government might attempt to remove or exclude an individual from the United States under the belief that he or she lacks citizenship. So this action uh, might arise then after some of the cases that Craig was talking about um, very commonly occurs subsequent to a criminal arrest or period of detention when the government then seeks removal. In these kind of cases, the individual usually raises the issue of citizenship defensively as a means of depor avoiding deportation. Um, finally, the third area is uh, one that is growing significantly in the modern era, which is the government might seek denaturalization. So somebody who has actually gone through the naturalization process, the government now attempts to revoke that, arguing that either the government mistakenly granted citizenship to somebody who failed to meet the statutory requirements, or in other cases, because the individual allegedly committed fraud in the naturalization process. And those often go along together, where the government alleges that the individual committed fraud, and that was the basis for the government's mistaken grant of, of naturalization. So in all of these cases, the courts have to make a decision. Is the individual a citizen or not? 
And the answer to that question, of course, has tremendous consequences determining whether the individual is able to enter or remain in the country, as well as whether they can vote and engage in the political process. And in a number of cases, it might even mean the difference between physical freedom and incarceration, especially in those cases where the government alleges that the individual uh, was fraudulently claiming to be a United States citizen. So the judiciary has grappled with these questions um, for more than a century, not surprisingly. But what is a little more surprising is that some of the most basic questions about how the court should determine citizenship are still open questions. Um, in part, this is because these are really difficult questions. So the Supreme Court has dealt with these issues in a number of cases, um, but it's really common for the court to have been fragmented, for there to be no majority opinion, just plurality opinions with the different justices taking various positions about the procedural aspects. So one of the most basic issues is the burden of proof required for the government to challenge an individual's claim of citizenship. The Supreme Court has repeatedly stated that heightened proof is required, but how heightened should it be? Um, the, the court has coalesced around a standard of clear, convincing, and unequivocal proof of a lack of citizenship. But it hasn't defined the meaning of unequivocal. How unequivocal does unequivocal proof have to be? So the lower courts have really struggled to fit the standard into our more common frameworks, and it hasn't resolved whether the standard is constitutionally required or whether it can be modified by Congress. So that question, we argue, the question of the burden of proof really depends on the issue being protected. Um, if it truly is only the individual's interest that mattered, then the due process protections of ordinary civil litigation should surely be good enough. Courts adjudicate, after all, matters that go to the, to the heart of lived experience, such as child custody, employment rights, and other civil matters that strike at the core of individuals' lives and concerns every day. So what is different about citizenship? Well, if the citizenship interests are different, and our article argues that they are, then the difference must stem from the political order enshrined in the United States Constitution. The Supreme Court has suggested as much in a citizenship case arising out of World War II, writing that considerations of policy derived from the traditions of our people require solid proof that citizenship was falsely and fraudulently procured before it can be taken away by the government. Two decades later, Justice Black authored a majority opinion that limited the circumstances in which Congress could take away citizenship, writing that the very nature of our free government makes it completely incongruous to have a rule of law under which a group of citizens in office can deprive another group of citizens of their citizenship. And Justice Black was not speaking hypothetically. The country had already seen over and over again the political risks of limiting citizenship rights, especially in conjunction with racial discrimination. So the Naturalization Act of 1790 limited citizenship to, quote, free white persons. And even after the, um, the enactment of the 14th Amendment with the end of the Civil War, when rights were extended to persons of African descent who had been brought here in slavery, um, that didn't erase the racial discrimination of citizenship and naturalization decisions. So in 1923, for example, the Supreme Court concluded that naturalized citizens from India had, quote, illegally procured their citizenship because they should not be considered white. There was a whole series of decisions about were individuals from India, were they white or not? And the Supreme Court ultimately said no, and they lost their citizenship en masse. 
Not only did the Indian-born men lose their U.S. citizenship, but so in many cases did their American-born wives, who at that time automatically were deemed to have taken their husband's citizenship. Um, in the 1930s, there was a massive operation targeting Mexicans for deportation, which swept up a number of U.S. citizens as well. And then, of course, in World War II, the United States engaged in the mass internment of U.S. citizens of Japanese ancestry. So the court was writing against a backdrop where recent events had shown that citizenship rights could be fragile, especially in the face of racial animus. In upholding the rights of citizenship, it emphasized the language, purpose, and prior construction of the 14th Amendment to show that it protects individuals against a congressional forcible destruction of citizenship, whatever one's creed, color, or race. So given the fundamental importance of the citizenship interest, we argue that heightened procedural safeguards are necessary in litigation that raises questions of citizenship. We identify three areas where such procedural protections are likely to satisfy the procedural due process test set out in Matthews versus Eldridge. So first, the heightened burden of proof. Um, the Supreme Court, at least a plurality of it, had at one point written that the proper burden of proof would approximate that demanded in a criminal case since the interests are so fundamental. Um, and we would agree with that and believe it's required by the Constitution. Um, second, we, secondly, we look at how um, litigation rights are determined in citizenship cases. Most courts have held that jury trials are not available because citizenship litigation arises in equity rather than law. Um, at the same time, courts have denied defendants the ability to raise equitable defenses such as latches or estoppel arguing that the government has simply waited too long to raise questions of citizenship or that it has recognized a person's citizenship for such a long time that it should be stopped from denying it. Um, we think this is inconsistent, and if citizenship litig litigation truly arises out of equity, equitable defenses are a very important part of due process therein. Um, and finally, we argue that citizenship litigation offers a very strong case for extending Gideon versus Wainwright's right to counsel into the civil arena. Um, although some states have uh, extended Gideon into the civil arena, so far the Supreme Court has failed to do so outside of cases where there is a potential loss of physical liberty. But again, we think that citizenship rights are so fundamental to the constitutional order that there's a very strong argument for extending a right to counsel. Um, of course, all of this is not without cost. There's no question that the financial cost itself would be significant. Um, and there's also the enforcement cost. Um, if we extend these procedural protections to citizenship litigation, there is a chance of under enforcement of immigration right of uh, immigration limitations. Um, but in the immigration context, we argue liberty means protecting the civil and political rights of citizens, even at the risk of substantive under-enforcement of immigration laws. Citizenship is so very closely linked to democracy that the Supreme Court once stated it was preferable to have many immigrants improperly admitted to the country than to have even one citizen permanently excluded from their country. And in the words of Justice Felix Frankfurter, the history of liberty has largely been the history of observance of procedural safeguards. We argue those procedural safeguards are needed to ensure that the judicial branch, judicial branch can remain the stalwart protector of a key pillar of our democracy. Thank you. I'd like to leave a lot of time for questions, but first I'd just like to ask if any, uh, Craig in particular, uh, have any comments on the other two papers and if you 
dialogue before we move into questions. Uh, we can open it up. Okay. Well, I'll just start then with the first with with the the first kind of broad question, which is that um, I've worked some in the Title IX context, and I think I keep hearing this distinction between criminal and civil a lot. And I see a lot of folks raising in maybe environmental cases, we need pre-enforcement review. Um, you know, a lot of these sanctions are tantamount to criminal sanctions. And then I hear deportation feels like a punishment. Um, and then, of course, we have Cassandra's paper where you're arguing for extending Gideon to the civil sphere. So I guess just my broad question to each of you is looking at the distinction between criminal and civil, does it make sense here? Um, does it make sense here? And, and uh, if not, why not? I'm happy to start with that one. Um, so I think, you know, again, as a proceduralist, I think we have to kind of separate out when we're looking at civil versus criminal, are we talking about the procedural protections afforded to individuals or are we talking about the substantive basis of the law? Um, I think with regard to the substantive basis and the purposes of the law, I think the purposes are very different. The Supreme Court has said, for example, in terms of denaturalization, that citizenship loss cannot uh, cannot be, well, punishment cannot be a basis of citizenship loss, right? Congress had um, originally tried to pass laws saying um, there are some things that individuals can do that would strip them of citizenship. Um, for example, fighting in somebody else's military, deserting, um, you know, if you're, if you're a member of the U.S. military, deserting the military during wartime. And, um, and the Supreme Court said, no, right? They're, they're, uh, Whatever the base of denaturalization is, it cannot be punishment. So there's a bright line there. Um, but when we look at the, the procedural protections that protect a defendant, um, there I think it's a lot fuzzier. We tend to have this kind of firmer idea of different spheres where criminal defendants get one subset of rights in the process um, and civil defendants get a much lower um, lower protection given the different rights at issue. But interestingly, the Supreme Court never drew a bright line in that regard. It simply came that way out of practice. Um, the, the Supreme Court's actual language, um, especially in the citizenship area, has tended to at least suggest that the procedural protections should follow from the strength of the interest at issue in criminal cases, the interested issue is a huge liberty issue. It's this question of physical liberty. Um, but the Supreme Court has, at least some justices have, have said straight up, and the court itself has strongly implied that the liberty issue in citizenship is equally strong. Um, well, and I think as I suggest in my paper, I mean, I think there seems in the Constitution to be a, a fairly important distinction between criminal and non-criminal matters. I mean, the Fifth Amendment speaks of criminal case, the, the Sixth Amendment any criminal prosecutions. So, I mean, the Constitution suggests there is a divide. Um, and uh, it is the case, though, that uh, immigration law seems to be wedded closer to criminal law such that the argument has been made that many of the protections that are afforded in criminal cases should be afforded in immigration matters as well. At least that's the argument that many scholars have been making recently. And and it's not utterly without basis in Supreme Court precedent uh, in the sense that it, there's a case that goes back all the way to the 40s, uh, Jordan versus DeGeorge, uh, in which the, the issue was whether or not um, uh, violating the Prohibition Act was a crime involving moral turpitude. And the case was litigated as to whether or not it was or not. But the dissenting justices in that case uh, made an argument that 
the entire provision is unconstitutional because it violates the due process clause. That wasn't even litigated in the case, um, so it was raised on its own by the dissenting justices. And the majority responded that essentially assuming that it does apply, um, it nonetheless, the provisions nonetheless satisfy the due process clause. And, and that has been the basis increasingly of this idea that the due process concerns that animate criminal matters should also animate immigration matters. And, and that's been present in a recent case, uh, Sessions versus DeMaia, which I mentioned, in which Justice Kagan just says, without much elaboration, that the same standard that applies in criminal cases should apply in immigration matters. And as I suggest, I don't think that really makes sense. Um, in, uh, as you look at it, obviously, all kinds of protections that apply in criminal cases don't, as a, as a matter of fact, apply in immigration matters. I don't think they can. Uh, and so, I mean, I, it seems to me that um, the divide is significant. And um, I mean, I just one quick thought that I, I would suggest is that it, I mean, if you just think about due process, uh, the, the immigration consequences of a criminal conviction are some of the like, indirect consequences that it can attach. But as I, I suggest, there are all these indirect consequences that can attach to a criminal conviction that are uncertain. And no one says that those violate due process. Um, so, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I guess we will go to the audience then. For some, and uh, by the way, uh, please just identify yourself and ask a question. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Attorney Jeff Mason. Uh, Attorney Jeff Mason. I um, I had a uh, an interesting case in uh, in immigration court where uh, the government cited certain irregularities in my client's um, original uh, application. Uh, due to uh, the attorney who was ultimately prosecuted um, in that the the job didn't actually have the uh, the uh, the characteristics of a uh, of a, an offer the we use the statute where um, you admit to portability but you say that the individual's been here for 15 years and uh, should be allowed to stay you know, had employed and otherwise law-abiding. Could you address that a little bit? I, I'm still a little vague about why that works. Um, yeah. It's so, um, so, yeah. I mean, I think part of the question is, does that go to the the equity issue? And I think there's a combination here um, of statutory power of common law development, where. Um, you know, these, these arguments have been accepted for some time. Um, and then there's the, the equity issue, which we deal with more in the citizenship context, and this is more in the pure immigration context. So it's a little bit um, tangential to what we looked at. But I think that the equity interest is, is very similar, um, where when somebody has participated in the community for a period of time, was this person actually um, granted citizenship and yes. then allegedly? Okay. Okay. So that, that is, yeah, that is much more in line with, um, I didn't understand that at first, but that is exactly what we were writing about. So, so yeah, I mean, so this idea of citizenship as giving somebody both a right and a duty to participate in the political polity and the political life of, um, of American life, I think, is is the foundation of our constitution and when somebody has done that legitimately for you know what was it like two decades that they had had 15 years 15 years um then 
taking away their citizenship um, creates a sense of, of insecurity, of instability. For other people who have been naturalized, suddenly they are worried, wait a minute, could I lose citizenship too if something was wrong in my original paperwork? And that sense of insecurity, I think, is would have been absolutely abhorrent to the founders, right? Where they want people to be comfortable in their citizenship and fully engaged as citizens. Um, in the modern era, of course, not everybody is politically engaged the way perhaps the founders intended. Um, but that sense of stability is is absolutely critical, I think, to our form of government. Arena, did you have thoughts to add on that part too? We could get our mic. Yes. So, so I'm Irina Manta. I'm Cassandra's co-author. Um, so more broadly, there's a question of what it means when people get citizenship. And what it's really turned into is that people get conditional citizenship if for a long period of time, and in fact indefinitely, they could lose that. And so to have this permanent class of second-class citizens, because what happens is, for civil denaturalizations, there is no statute of limitation. So for criminal denaturalizations, that can, you know, only 10 years that the government can, can try to do that to you. For, for civil denaturalizations, they can come after you after 20, 30, 40 years. And so at, at no point do you become a citizen like everyone else. Sure, people say, well, you can never run for president, right? And so that's always going to be a difference. But that's a fairly minor point for most people, right? Most of us are not going to run for president. Um, I guess the numbers are larger and larger of people who do. Uh, and and so, uh, and, and, and then in addition, and I think this is what, what Cassandra was, was talking about earlier, not only is there no statute of limitations, there's not even a right to counsel. And when we think about the fact that if you asked most people, would you rather lose your U.S. citizenship or would you rather go to jail for a month? I think many, many people would rather go to jail for a month. So that really shows you that this is very much up there, and much longer than a month, in fact. This is very much up there with the kinds of sanctions that could be imposed against people. And so those are things we should be thinking about. Yeah, well, since the mic's right there, we'll start there and we'll move back to the front. And then. Stuart Reuter, <clears throat> let me raise the issue <clears throat> of birthright citizenship which we keep hearing gets abused by people coming in from China when they're eight months pregnant uh, to create an American citizen for their futures. Any comments? So I'll Peter just... Chuck, uh, my professor of Yale, Yale Law School, wrote a book about that. And uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Peter Shuck, who's a professor at Yale Law School, wrote a book about that arguing that um, uh, the citizenship, uh, birthright citizenship is conferred on uh, people born here subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. And uh, he argues that if you go back and read the legislative history and everything, um, everyone agrees that it doesn't apply to diplomats, for example. That no one thinks that when a diplomat comes here, he's not a German anymore, he's an American. Uh, but he made the point that you know, if somebody uh, from Israel, a woman is pregnant from Israel, comes here to Disney World and has a premature birth, isn't it a little weird to say that, oh, well, obviously that child can be drafted to fight in our wars 20 years from now? And so I think there, um, there, is, there are some, some very interesting and good arguments. I imagine it's only a matter of time before um, I'm aware of actually of one case where 
birthright citizenship is an issue. Uh, I don't think it'll be a decisive issue, so I don't think they'll ultimately reach a conclusion on it. But that's what I know about it. Yeah, so I, I'll just note that um, this is a very, I think, live issue. We haven't, we don't have a panel today on it. I think folks might might bring it up, um, but it really does get to the heart of the question, which is why why do we have our immigration system as it is? Whom does it serve? Whom should it serve? Um, and I guess I will just ask one more question of each of you, which is if you could kind of describe, this is maybe the crit kind of question, if you could describe like who are current, because if I, if I take all of your positions in order, like whom does our current system serve? It really sounds like, well, we want to create a transient class of cheap labor for folks and we want to make it easy and not too difficult for businesses to be able to take advantage of that. And I mean, and is that what our system is designed for or is it something else? Because it seems like there's a, a sort of moral patina to it, but, you know, it's, is, is it really at the heart of it? So, I mean, if you could describe then, like, whom you think our current system is serving, because, you know, even accounting for a political, political economy, things occur for a reason. Laws get passed for a reason. Why are we where we are today? Well, obviously, some of it is... Uh the interest of the business community. They're very powerful within the Republican Party. There's usually resistance to immigration law enforcement provisions like mandatory E-Verify precisely because business is kind of like having uh, cheap labor. But I think the other, um, um, the main beneficiary of the current system of legal immigration are the immigrants themselves because of what some people call chain migration. I mean, you can bring in your spouse and your, and your children which makes sense, but you can also bring in your unmarried brothers and sisters and your parents, and guess what? Your unmarried brothers and sisters then go back and get married, and they bring their spouses in. And as a result, um, the immigration system, these huge backlogs are growing in every category. Uh, it's basically crowding out any other, uh, you know, people want to talk about women, you should have more people who are high-tech or more people who are refugees. Uh, but those, bringing more of them in is is getting harder and harder because of the, the family unification provisions, if you will. So I, I'd say probably the, the most important beneficiary of the current system where the benefits are really accruing to them and not to the rest of the country would be uh, family chain migration. Um, one of the things that with respect to these CIMT provisions is that when I read the congressional records over the past decade or two, it was striking to me is that I, I didn't find a single member of Congress who wanted to repeal them. Um, I just thought that was interesting that um, there are, for example, people on the Democratic uh, side who um, were in favor of amending the provision to make it such that uh, only conviction of a crime involving moral turpitude that resulted in incarceration, actual incarceration for a year, <coughs> resulted in deportation. And there are Republicans who wanted to somehow make it easier to prove a CAMT while, because they would allow uh, evidence outside the record of conviction to be admitted into the deportation proceedings. But there was no one suggesting that they should be repealed altogether. And so to me, that was interesting because it's so easy to imagine just doing away with this and replacing it with a far simpler alternative. So I was just curious, why weren't they? So one actually, one explanation is just inertia um, uh, or lack of interest, but they are interested in these provisions. Um, there is movement in immigration law. So to me, it suggests that at least it seems that many members of Congress think these provisions, these morality provisions are useful. And so I was just useful trying to think out why. And I think, um, so that was 
was what I was trying to get across. Do you have an yeah. answer? Well, as I suggested, I, I think that, uh, I mean, it is interesting, I'll, I'll just say that, I mean, it, to me, that the problem of involuntary manslaughter, I, I thought was interesting in the sense that um, and here you have a number of people who are sentenced to several years in prison for involuntary manslaughter who are not ordered deported, or you have people who have committed relatively trivial crimes, at least as defined by the criminal law, who are deported. So it does really highlight this idea that the criminal law and immigration law do not serve similar purposes. So trying to help figure out what are the purposes that are served by immigration law. And it seems to be an idea of uh, enforcing or uh, affirming some notion of morality uh, um, apart from uh, the purposes served by the criminal law. And I would just go back again to first principles and say that when the founders created our system of government, they relied on this idea of citizenship by choice. And I think that birthright citizenship still gets us there, um, that I, I am proud to live in a country that people want to be a citizen of. And I think that that pride in the country goes back to the system that our founders created. Um, I think there there can be difficulties, of course, in all of the administration of immigration law, which we'll, we'll hear a lot about today. But I think the first principle is this is a country of citizens by choice, and I hope that it always continues to be that way. Sure. I just want to make two quick points about a couple of things I think we need to debunk about some of what Bill said. Um, so, so this whole chain migration business, uh, there are really long, essentially, waiting lists to bring your relatives. So I just pulled it up so I can give you the exact dates. If you want to bring your sibling from Mexico, that person needs to have been trying to do that since December of 1997. Uh, so, so this idea that, you know, you can just bring all your relatives and that that's not a problem, that's myth number one. Myth number two is the following, which is this idea that we've been hearing from a lot of politicians also that... You know, we're not bringing in the highly qualified people and instead we're letting other people come in and their relatives, etc. Well, a couple of things about that. First of all, you have individuals like myself who came to the United States to study at Yale University. At the same time, the way they got their green card was through marriage because that was the most straightforward way to do it. So I am one of those, you know, chain migration products. Second of all, I mean, again, ask yourselves what that really means. Second of all, this assumes that there is a limited number of people that we should be bringing in, right? That there has to be a quota and that because there is that quota and these people who are coming in through chain migration through their families are taking away the positions from the more highly qualified people that could come in uh, through employment-based mechanisms. That's all a choice. We choose how many people get to come in, right? And so it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game at all. As to otherwise, I would invite you to take a look at the uh, economic numbers of the Cato Institute and other organizations that have gone through uh, and shown what the, what the economic gains are from immigrants to this country. So we'll give Bill a chance to respond, and then we'll go to the front right here. You don't need to. Um, I think there are uh, a number of very good reasons why we should limit immigration. I think probably, uh, in fact, most of the immigration reform groups in the United States were founded by environmentalists. You may remember, well, you're probably not old enough to remember, but back in the 60s, um, the major threat to the environment was overpopulation. That's almost every, what everybody talked about. Uh, now, since then, there's, for a number of reasons, it's become a little harder to talk about overpopulation, and the focus now is on climate change. But underlying that, of course, is the climate change is faster the more people you have. 
And so I think the U.S. has a, an interest in, in stopping our population from growing to a billion people. Um, and there are other reasons, but that's one. And on the uh, other issue, uh, yeah, you're right. Not You can't immediately bring in all your relatives. But the fact of the matter is the ones that do get in are on a waiting list, form the, by far the largest category of immigrants. And then you have that long waiting list of people who – Probably, if we ever reform the laws, they're going to get to come in, too. But right now, most of the immigration slots go to them. And, uh, and, it's a, it, and it, it will never be under, underfilled because, you know, brothers get married and they have kids and then, you know, so on as they have parents. And yeah. so that, that's all I meant. I didn't mean to say that I didn't think I said that everybody that has a uh, – every immigrant that has a relative can immediately bring them in. Um, there are caps, numerical, except on spouses and, and minor children. There's no cap on that. But there are caps on all the other categories. You have this gentleman who's been very patient in the front right here. Richard Belzer. I'd like to get back a question related to the topic instead of the question whether why we have immigration law at all. Um, E-Verify is an example of, of several of these cases where there are trade-offs between false negatives and false positives. In our, in our choices and figure out ways of handling it. Um, <clears throat> I want to suggest, thinking about E-Verify, imagine a system that were perfect, that it had neither false negatives nor false positives. I, I realize the government can't do that. Um, <laughs> but it would seem to me that a likely consequence of a perfect E-Verify system where everyone has to comply, every employer has to comply, and it always works, is that employees would be would be transitioned into uh, independent contractors. And for independent contractors, there would be no verification of uh, citizenship or uh, right to work or anything of that sort. And it probably goes on a lot. I, and the IRS cannot possibly uh, <clears throat> enforce that problem as it stands. Why do you uh, imagine a system for solving that? Um, well, uh, I mean, right now there are you know, about half the employers in the country use E-Verify, um, which means that they've chosen that rather than converting. They're not converting all their employees to independent contractors. Uh, and it's, I, it's not quite as easy to convert an employee to an independent contractor as I think you're implying. Um, independent contractors, as independent contractors, there's different kinds of – there's no tax withholding. There's no Social Security payments. And therefore, the government – apart from immigration control, has a very strong interest in making sure that people who are actually employees don't report themselves as independent contractors. So I think, well, you make a legitimate point. That's one, one way of getting around the system. Um, the government has its own interest in preventing that from happening. And, in fact, they're, they're one of the areas where they're actually pretty strong in enforcing the law. But I agree, it could be, it could be one consequence. Obviously, any time you come up with a rule to stop people doing something, they're going to try to find you know, a way around it. Um, so I'll just note in terms of like the federal acquisition regulations and things like that, usually you have some kind of certification that you're not hiring these folks and that you're making efforts. And I don't know what those efforts would look like, but presumably there could be some sort of regulatory fix. So we have a question back up here. Hi, my, thank you. My name is David Rubenstein. I'm a professor at Washburn University School of Law. My question's for Professor Lerner. Uh, first of all, it was a great presentation. I enjoyed all the presentations today. 
My question for you, uh, Professor, is to what extent your defense of the CMIT on constitutional grounds depends on the liquidation of the meaning of CMIT by the agency. So, you know, it's liquidated in two ways. Number one, we have a, a standard or a test that has to be vile, baseless, uh, you know, uh, baseless, vile, et cetera. And then in the context of that, you also have these categories of things like crimes, you know, or certain crimes like uh, theft, a theft offense, sort of categorically, that's a CMIT. And so, you know, so the question, but I also have a sort of a follow-up is, the question is, to what extent does the liquidation or the sort of the refinement of the meaning of CMIT affect your constitutional defense? Uh, and to put it in context, in the non-delegation context, uh, as you know, Justice Scalia in the Whitman v. American Trucking case said that on constitutional questions, it doesn't matter what the agency says. You know, the agency, whether the agency gives an intelligible principle or not, is irrelevant to the constitutional question of whether or not a statute violates the delegation doctrine. And so I'm, I'm sort of connecting those two ideas to wonder if all we had was the statutory language, CMIT, without the refining glosses by the agency, how that would affect your defense of the CMIT standard. Right, and that's an excellent question. I mean, clearly it would be more liquidated if the courts gave Chevron deference to the BIA's interpretation. Um, and you know, I, when I looked at the the case law in 1995, in the 1990s, when Congress enacted the 1996 immigration law, there was actually, it seems like a split in the circuits, although the majority of circuits in the 90s seemed to suggest that the courts of appeals gave deference to a, um, a Board of Immigration Appeals interpretation of the CAMT language. The Ninth Circuit seemed to be an outlier in that. So, so one argument you could make is that when Congress enacted the 1996 Act, it was against this background of general Chevron deference um, to a, a BIA interpretation. And that would certainly, if it were universal, would, I think, strengthen my argument that the language, although ambiguous, could be liquidated through agency interpretation. But it seems to me that there's increasingly an argument that uh, the BIA should not be given Chevron deference. And if that is the case, if, if the BIA is denied Chevron deference, then I think you could argue that the, the fracturing of the interpretations of the CMT language would uh, weaken my argument because it would make it less and less clear what the language meant. But I don't know if you had a follow-up. I think the question is even a little bit more refined than that because it really is, is the agency's interpretation even relevant uh -huh. to a constitutional question? And in the same way that Scalia says the agency's interpretation of the statute is irrelevant to the question of non-delegation. Right. Whether or not the CMT language is constitutional or not is a question of law as to which I'd imagine no Chevron deference would be given to the BIA. That, that, that I agree with, of course. Um, so I guess my point was only that if the question is, is the language so indeterminate that it would fail due process, uh, to answer that question, I would think the argument is uh, is no, it's not so indeterminate um, if the BIA's interpretation is given deference because they, they could possibly be in a position to, you know, to, to, to liquidate the meaning. Um, so that would be, I think, the point I was trying to make. All right, well, uh, please join me in thanking our panelists.